0: The following is a rebroadcast of Monday's February 29th, 2016 podcast with guest Alice Alvey talking about the topic, Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, also known as HMDA.
1: Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. To participate in today's program, our guest call-in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here is your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'.
0: Good to have you with us, everybody. It is Monday, March 29, 2016, and we are broadcasting live from Austin, Texas. We appreciate you taking time to dial in. Look at people dialing in. Look at this footboard. It's loading up people all over the topic. People say, who's interested in regulation?" Well, obviously, a lot of people on this call aren't we have on our special topic again uh, Alice Alvey, who's here going to be talking about the HUMDA updates. As most of you are aware, CFPB issued a finalized uh, home mortgage disclosure or HUMDA rule in October. It had some changes in it, but with all the focus on TRID, many are unaware of the newest HUMDA rules, which adds 25 new data points and modifies 14 other data points. In addition, you're going to have to be start reporting on New products, reverse mortgage loans, home equity loans, and Alice is going to tell us all about all the rest of it. And, of course, we are talking today in a Hot Topic segment with Alice Alvey, Senior Vice President of Indicom Global Services, she uh, has been with, and uh, she owned uh, Indicom, excuse me, she owned uh, Mortgage U for years, and then Indicom saw the value in it, picked the, her company up, and uh, she leads that charge there. They're doing some very innovative things in a number of areas, but today we're talking about HumDA, the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. Alice, good to have you here with us, and thanks so much for taking time to give us a rundown on this and bringing us up to speed on all that's happening and the changes with HumDA.
2: Thanks, Dave. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Oh, it's good. Especially coming off a vacation where, you know, fresh and re, all refreshed, That's good. <laughs> 14 inches of snow in Detroit. Yikes. All right, so we're not going to go to to the snow report. Let's talk about how <laughs> Many are snowed over by this, if we're playing on that. Uh, <laughs> uh, play, they're snowed, under, snowed over with this. And Humda data collection has been around for a long time, Alice, but what is the purpose of Humda? Let's get back and cover what is this thing about in the first place? And uh, talk about
2: that. Well, I, you know, originally it was about property and location, right? I mean, the, uh, where were the lenders lending? And so everything was focused on the location of the property. And I remember someone saying, you know, it was all of a sudden, like all of a sudden they started noticing, hey, there's all this borrower information on here as well. Let's start looking at, you know who we're lending to and the type of borrower and so over the years i've sat with in many an audit and kept asking myself you know what are we trying to get to here are we trying to get to that recruited one person unfairly, or did we treat multiple people? So, you know, today and over history, it really has ended up serving as almost the foundation, from a lender's viewpoint anyway, of what you will be measured by in where you lend and the credit decisions that you make. And are those uh, decisions applied fairly across race, sex, sex, ethnicity, geographic regions. And so that's really kind of the bottom line to it, you know, that it's much more than what it used to be. And, it, and it's now going to be having quite a few more data fields, which means the the regulators will have more at their fingertips to analyze right out of date mm. and then have a different methodology for selecting loans from that point. So today they have a set list of data that they get from us, on an annual basis, and they use that to select audit originated loans versus withdrawn and denied and then determine whether or not there's some disparity in your numbers and they need to come into your shop to audit. I will say also I remember uh, looking online one time, and if you found and came across that there was grant money out there, so if you're the person who goes, I love to analyze data, <laughs> there were there was, uh, <laughs> companies offering That's an anti-shell deal, that's for earn sure. Money. Right. <laughs> you could, uh, <laughs> if you know how to file for a grant, they would there, were grant, there was grant money available to pay people to audit the, the lender of your choice. So if that's one of the challenges with wow. public data. If someone decides they want to go look at it to see how your shop is operating. So I guess that's, you know, the original purpose has changed just versus how it's used today.
0: You know, that's why I think when you look at the regulation and you look at what something starts out as and then what it becomes is something else, 25 new data points and modifies 14 other existing data points. It is really overwhelming. But who is required to file a humda report, Alice? (laughs)
2: <laughs> so uh, I think that's one of the changes that people are looking at. As a matter of fact, uh, Andy and I, we were talking to Andy Shell, We were talking about that before we got on the show here. So, you know, if you're a depository, you actually may have the opportunity to get out of filing. So now it's, there's a, a smaller threshold there for the depositories, So that'll change from did you have 25 home purchase uh, loans, including refinances, and then now it's in the last two years, and now it's going to change to did you have at least 25 closed end in the two calendar years or open lines of credit. So that's another criteria that's going to be changing is the idea that lenders um, with uh, HELOCs will now be having to factor in that into their account for whether or not they would need to file the report. So that's one change for the depositories. For the non-depositories, you walk, you know, in either case you go to the Humbug Guide Getting It Right and there's this nice little yes, no flow chart for if you have to report. If you're a non-depository, this group, now there are more people that will likely have to file. them. just pay attention to little nuances. Um, I'll give you an example for a long time you walked through the first couple of boxes and you said oh i, I may not have to report because i'm too small uh, one of the criteria is do i underwrite the loan right so when whenever you're reading something related to humda to identify if you have to file when they use the term originate that means you underwrote the loan and it closed so as you're saying all right well i might meet the threshold criteria but then i get to this box that says did i originate a hundred or more home purchase loans which is, you know, they use the word purchase that includes even refinances. Did I make the loan decision on 100? That was kind of the general criteria we've used forever, and that'll still carry off into 2017. That number's going to drop. And when we get into 2018, starting January 1st, the criteria will be for only 25 closed-end mortgages, and now they're going to look at the last two-year window. So instead of just a one-year window, it's looking at a two-year. So lenders need to double-check if you thought you did not have to file because you didn't hit this 100 loan threshold. Or another thing was there used to, today there's a $10 million threshold. Uh, so maybe your net worth was or your um, total assets were less than that and you didn't have to file. That's going away. Uh, so maybe you were making those loan decisions, uh-huh. but you didn't hit that $10 million, uh asset threshold. So that's two criteria I think that's important for non-depositories to check out. Uh, which means you need to start figuring out how to today it now.
0: Better do it. Wow, Damn, Andy. I already, Yeah, go ahead. I'm going
2: to. Just listening to Alice
3: talk for three minutes, I'm already going. Okay, no wait. I'm sorry. So, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta call Alice and, and go. So do I? Do I have to do this or not? You know, it's one of those things become kind of binary when you get your eyes rolled back in your head. So, Alice, you have so much knowledge on this stuff. It's amazing. What an amazing resource! All of the listeners have right at their fingertips. All they got to do is type you an email or give you a call, and they can get everything they ever needed to know.
2: Um, <laughs> Thank so you. I've always,
3: <laughs> I've always wondered, though. You know, I, I mentioned earlier about the NMLS stuff going to DOJ and DOL, and but you know, how is this data used? And, and more importantly. Who uses it? And then kind of the tag-on to that is, am I going to get in trouble because of it?
2: Well, that's a a good point. I, I mentioned a little bit, you know, that it could be used by the public. It's going to definitely be used by your regulators. You should use it as well. I think that's the thing that a lot of people miss. They might look at it as that this is something that is just a burden. It just causes me challenges throughout the year. I have to have a body in place for somebody who does the the check, you know, every single loan that um, we have for every application that we take. So you start to feel it. But you can use it for marketing. I mean, there's great public data available. The so CFPB has redesigned the website. So I recommend go out there, look at what you you can find out about your competition. You can find out, you know, how much business is being done. So, you know, people absolutely use this for marketing as well as for auditing purposes. But you should know where you lend and how things are, are working out for your company because very often... When people ask me, well, you know, if I have this particular policy in place, maybe a, a pricing policy or an interest rate or a, you know, a rate extension policy, will I end up with a fair lending problem? Well, the answer is, well, that depends on your Humda data, right? And so, if you already know where you stand and you're measuring it and knowing where you stand from a fair lending standpoint, it makes it easier to make some business decisions uh related to products and interest rates so the The key wow. point there is don't just think regulators use it, you should use it too.
3: That is a great point. We should use it ourselves. Wow, that's awesome. So as we look at this humda data and all the stuff we're pulling together and you look at all these other reports we got to generate like in m l s reporting and there's you know, it's double it's double work. There's duplicate data. So well, what's the deal with this? How much of this Humda reporting is in the NMLS reporting and how does, you know help me understand that?
2: Well, I know you work with NMLS reporting a lot, Andy, like you mentioned in your segment before. So you know i'd like to get your feedback too on this so from my vantage point what i see is certainly action taken is an issue and for humda reporting you're trying and definition of an application right so for uh humda reporting you're trying to define did it, did i take an application or not and ecoa comes into play right uh, or when mm-hmm. when we're defining that from a system standpoint and for nmls reporting but for Honda, I'm concerned on do I have a property address or not, right, in order to have a reportable loan. So they don't match up. And I'm not aware of a lot of loan origination systems that are able to make that difference. I'd like to know what you see, right? You're out there as well. How are lenders actually coping it with, from your vantage point with two different definitions for what goes on the report?
3: You know the because we've got the six fields in Respa, and most people use the address as the trigger. So the TBA address means it's ECOA, and with a real value means it's Respa. But that's a, that's not universal. That you make a great point, Alice. People are going to have to augment this a bit, and probably put a flag in. So if the in if the if all applications included ECOA, which is just basically a credit report poll, is a reportable event under the new rules and it's not I mean it's it, that's a great point the programmers have how long until they have to have this ready Nine months. well
2: right so we the loans that the applications that we start taking January 1st of 2018 need to be on track right so you need to be ready as of January 1st you don't want to be in cleanup mode so I just want to clarify one thing as we were defining what goes on Humda versus NMLS. NMLS is the report that usually needs more than what is on Humda. And so if you're thinking they're the same, that I not mean you, I mean our audience. If anybody in the audience is thinking those are a match, your LOS probably has a field for you to exclude a loan from Humda. And that'll be important to make sure you have procedures around. So The reporting requirements themselves uh, technically will, for all of the extra fields that Dave mentioned, you know about 26 extra fields. You have to be hitting the ground running with all your your action taken date January 1st, right? So loans are reported in the year that the action was taken, uh, not the the date that the application was taken. So some people might be going, okay, well, I don't have to worry about this, you know, uh, until 2018. That's not true. You're going to probably have loans, especially like new construction, right? How long did that take to close? (laughs) Or when the action was taken, when did it close that are hitting at the end of 2017?
3: Well, and you make a great point that the mortgage originators probably need to get on the phone with their LOS and say, how am I going to do this? What are you guys doing now to fix the system so come next January I can capture the data I have to have on January 1? That That's a really important point. So I'll, I'll go on to this, this next point we were going to talk about, Alice, and and that is, you know, why? Why are the reporting requirements changing? What what tipped in some bureaucrats' mind to say, oh, let's get more?
2: <laughs> you know, uh, that's always a good question, right? Why do we have more regulation? This is certainly one of the last large components that came out of the Dodd-Frank Act. I'm sure, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, and having lived through 100 audits uh, where, you know, they're they're looking at one set of criteria, right, and it's basically the property address, the borrower name, you know, race, sex, and ethnicity, just some high level information. And for every single time they decide they want to audit Humda, they now have to get into. All the differences right when they pull a loan and they go okay how come this loan was denied and this loan was approved and they're asking that of the lender you know this one was denied this one was approved well every time i would have to sit there and say well the credit score on this loan is 580 that's why we didn't do it and the credit score on this loan is 800 and that's why we did approve it right some very fundamental things of of differences in loans and why the decisions were different so there's some sense that if we give more data to the regulator, will our audits actually be easier for us? They'll have some basic information that they'll already know about pricing and credit score and the age of the borrower in particular for reverse loans. On the other hand, you go, okay, well, that's just more information that can be more dangerous than it serves as good right. because now it becomes more public. And so I think from the why standpoint, they wanted to have more that they could see without having to get into the loan files, which now, in my opinion, raises just more questions that we'll have to defend in audits. Exactly, it does. Wow, good job, Alice. Okay, um, hey, Alice. Yeah, yeah.
4: No, I wanted to, you know, with, with the requirements not being in place until 2018, What are you advising your customers, your clients, to do now about this?
2: So, right, everybody's feeling the pain right now of trying to file the 2015 calendar or year um, reports and finding all their mistakes, right? We all have, a lot of lenders have procedural mistakes. You have loans that are on the report and shouldn't be. You have loans that didn't make it to the report and should have. You have, most shops have constant challenges with, uh, withdrawn, denied, and closed for incompleteness. So the process we're recommending to companies is to spend 2016 reviewing your procedures, have somebody from the outside double-check and test. We certainly have the ability to do that. And be able to then report on where your errors are. And then so go through that in 2016 so you have time to fix things. It take, this takes time, right? You're going to have one group that's worrying about the new reporting, but you've got to clean up the garbage you have now mm-hmm. before you now get double the fields. So that's what we're saying: clean house. This is the year to clean house because you'll be implementing the new fields and needing to test them so that everything's ready by really June of next year. You should be ready to go so you can test this. We all just lived a major technology hurdle, right? With Trid, right? <laughs> right. Learned some valuable lessons about last-minute planning.
4: All right, so that kind of leads me to my next question, which is the data that creates the Humda records is all sitting in your LOS, right? In the, in the LOS. Uh, can't you just data dump into the Humda reports from the LOS and feel pretty good about things?
2: Well, a lot of the fields, that does work very well for So, you know, what we work with lenders on is which of those fields do you have a high degree of confidence on, and certainly on a closed loan, you can get a high degree of confidence on a lot of fields because it went through so many um, hands. The the things that become the bigger challenges are, you know, a loan that's withdrawn or denied, right? You can have three people sitting around a desk looking at a particular found. Perhaps all three of you have a different opinion on, well, is that withdrawn? Did the borrower actually withdraw or did we deny it because there was 35 conditions, right? <laughs> so um, mm. that's the decision trees that are very manual and that the LOS cannot handle for you. So there still are quite a few fields that require either really solid policies and procedures, and then some folks who are trained well to know what side of the fence, like a withdrawn, denied, or closed for completeness would fall. So if the LOS doesn't, it captures the data that has to go on the report, but it's the procedures behind it. I call it the three-legged stool, right? You have the, the, the LAR itself, the loan application register that you file. You have your report, uh, the actual, I'm sorry, you have your system, your LOS, and then you have your documents in your file. And that's the component that very often trips people up. So you can have like um, the LAR shows 5000 a month in income, but the loan file is showing 4500 It's not showing the same number. and Or someone went in and changed it after it closed or after your LAR was filed. <laughs> but now when a regulator looks at your LOS, that component doesn't match the LAR. So all three parts have to match.
4: Wow. And is it is it that, that decision tree that you talk about, especially on the loans that don't go to closing, is is it terribly subjective?
2: Well, we try and make it logical, right? That you know, basically, if I know loan processing, even a good originator, you know, can say, okay, if I had this step, um, yes or no, should it be considered and uh, withdrawn or denied? And so we can design those based on the company's procedures. Where it gets a little challenge is did it go to underwriting or not, right? And did my borrower actually withdraw or did we coerce them? So, yes, I'm a firm believer you can set some really good benchmarks for your staff members to use so they make the right decision on that. But you have to have that in writing so they can reference it all the time. Uh, It's not something that your software will do. It's not something that AUS does for you. Mm -hmm. And just because you have an AUS approval doesn't mean the loan was approved. As far as HUMDA is concerned, HUMDA's definition for approval is really tight, right? You you can't have all those conditions outstanding. Um needs to be reviewed by someone with lending authority, and you have minimal conditions. And that's not usually how we classify an approval in our LOS. So there's disconnect there, too. Wow.
0: Dave, I'll we'll send it back to you. Yeah, thank you, Joe. <laughs> Look at all this stuff. It's just really amazing. So I'm looking at the clock, this program just runs so quickly. I have six minutes before we go out the door here. But give us some idea about the fines and penalties uh, if the report is wrong.
2: Well, you know, there's not a magic number. You know, the uh, more recent case that, uh, the, C- of course, the CFPB had control of this for a few years now. And so the, their case was a company that, Four hundred twenty-five thousand and thirty-four thousand for another company. You know and their reports weren't huge. So the thirty-four thousand dollar fine was for fifty-seven hundred en- ent- entries on the um, report, and the four hundred twenty-five thousand dollar report uh, fine, I'm sorry, was for twenty-one thousand entries on the report. So you know those weren't significant. Filings, I mean, especially the 5700 that's not an uncommon range for a lot of mid-sized lenders. So that's a lot of money. Uh, there isn't a magic number that goes with, you know, if I have this many errors, is it X dollars per day that I don't fix it? If you go to the CFPB bulletin that was, it was a 2013, it was 13-11, this one illustrates the things that they'll look at to determine what are the fines and penalties. Um, I had a customer call me up uh, about filing their report last week. They realized they had thousands of errors. They had made a huge mistake in how they were managing one particular aspect of the action taken and the action taken date. And they realized that before they filed their report. Well, when you hit submit, you're certifying to the accuracy of that report. So now they're in a conundrum, right? Do I file knowing I have errors or do I self-report? So CFPB talks about that, you know, could I reduce my fines and penalties if I self-reported? And, you know, what's the timing in that? So I will always advise to seek legal counsel if you have a lot of errors on your report. Um, I I can't stress that enough. Uh, There's a practical way to go about that in terms of um, how to file and, and making corrections. But also we had one of our clients who was audited by the CFPB, and the CFPB is, giving them some corrective action direction, but not giving them a fine. So it says a lot when, yeah, it says a lot when you've got some good uh, policies and procedures and you may not get hit with the dollars. Mm -hmm.
0: Can can lenders refile if they see they have some errors?
2: Uh, Yes, you can refile. As a matter of fact, you should refile if you exceed the 10% overall error threshold across the report or, 5%, 5%, some companies like to give themselves a lot of room, right? They figure if they caught 10%, CFPP might call, you know, another percent um, an error that they missed. So we recommend using lower numbers, right? If in any field you might have like 3% error rate, you should look at refiling. If you have any more than maybe a 7 or 8%, and again, I'm always going to say seek legal counsel, talk with them about the types of errors because that can make a difference um, on the refiling. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think there are some things that might be driven by technology as to why the error occurred. Uh, those are um, sometimes things you can, you know, provide back with explanation. So, yeah, you, you should yeah. refile and talk to an attorney about refiling. Yes.
0: We're working on getting an attorney to come on here in a couple of weeks uh, <laughs> to talk about this really really get into it. Excellent advice. Where can companies get help, help on Humda? Andy kind of answered this. We all know that you're a great resource. Where can companies go?
2: Well, I mean, certainly there are a lot of companies that, you know, might be one-on-one. You can – some people try and do some self-help, right? Hire a bunch of temporaries to come in (laughs) and start to clean up your data. And if they just give them this little checklist, will they make it? Well, one of our customers, the CFPB, didn't like that methodology and actually wrote them up for not training the trainees, not training the temporary people well, uh, not being able to defend the procedures that the trainees used. So anytime you're in the process of having to fix your humder report, you have to have your working papers. You can't just say, I got all these people, I put them in a room, and they all went in and fixed it. And and now I'm better now, right? <laughs> I feel better now. Right, But right. all these people in my computer system, they want to see exactly what they did, how they did it. Um, so what we do is we use our Kaizen software. It's a checklist reporting. It's a fully documented workflow process and training and flow so that, you know, if you've had errors that need fixing and you need thousands of errors fixed and maybe you need, you know, 25 people to jump on it, we will organize that project to help you with that and make sure that you have the working papers to back up what was done on that to make the corrections. So, um, And also consulting, right? Uh, you need somebody to come yeah. in, read your procedures, make sure you don't have gaps, and you know, we'd be happy to jump in and help with that too. I've watched you work, Andy,
0: and I have watched you work so many times, and it is just excellent the resource you are. So much additional information that you can get while you're helping with one area. You also say, oh, by the way, have you looked at this, 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 and this? And it really opens opens up. You really um, do a great job. Uh, I, when I try to okay. tell to people trying to do this themselves, it's like physician heal yourself. It's like I see the guy that reminds me of that one ad where you see a guy trying to do his own appendectomy or his uh, appendix uh, appendectomy, and he's a little he, he's cutting himself. He, and I go, unbelievable! You can't do this by yourself, folks. Get help. Alice is a great place to start, and then reach out to folks like Andy and all the aspects of where you can go to get solutions for this. It's good to have you with us, everybody. It's been really good to have you back and on the program talking about. Not the most exciting topic, but one we need to pay attention to. And like you said, you cannot assume that this is out in the future, so I don't have to worry about it. You better start worrying about it. In fact, so many, so much so that many are saying that we need to just pass, get an extension on this. So the NBA is working on that, but get a hold of Alice. Get a hold of us. We're happy to help you in any way, shape, or form we can. Good to have you with us, everybody. It's, again, uh, Ben uh, Alice Alvey. Uh, Senior Vice President of Indicom, talking about Humda. Look forward to having you back next week. We're going to be talking next week. Jess Letterman is a, a veteran of the industry, along with Jeff Liebowitz, will be on. We're talking about the book that we all contributed chapters to. It's called the Mortgage Handbook, the Mortgage Bankers Handbook 2020. Looking forward in it's it's just a three volume series. I got a privilege of uh, contributing to a chapter on this. We're going to be talking about it. It's a valuable resource. I'm really excited to both have Jess and Jeff on the program next week to talk about the program. Good to be with you, everybody. Have a great rest of the week. We'll look forward to seeing you back here next week. Tell others about the program. Thank you. See you back here next week.
1: This has been Lickin' on Lending. A weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lincoln, of Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Today's guests were Joe Farr from MBS Line, Andy Shell of Mortgage Banking Solutions, and Alice Alvey, President CMB of Mortgage U. Come by next week, and thank you for listening.